the FT. Welcome to World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. A ceasefire has been declared in Gaza after a short and bloody conflict, which saw the death of at least 152 Palestinians and five Israelis. So how do relations between Israel and the Palestinians stand after this latest round of fighting, and what does it mean for the wider region? Joining me in the studio is Rula Khalaf, our Middle East editor, and on the line from Gaza is Tobias Buck. Tobias, give us a sense of the state of Gaza. How widespread is the damage and what's the mood of people there? Well, there's far less damage than Gaza suffered during the three-week war four years ago when thousands of houses were destroyed and 1,400 people died. The death toll this time around, of course, is far lower. And also it seems that Israel made an effort not to destroy the civilian infrastructure of Gaza. So the water system, the power system, the roads, other networks are still functioning very well. There is individual damage in in all parts of Gaza. There are big buildings have been destroyed, especially police stations and uh, Hamas ministries and so forth. But it does not feel quite as terrible as as it felt in the aftermath of the 2008-2009 war. The mood in Gaza is, uh, I would say, quite jubilant. I mean, people are tremendously relieved that this war stopped before an Israeli ground invasion. And there's also a sense that Hamas and the Palestinians scored a famous victory here. I spoke to many people on the streets of Gaza City today, and they almost universally said this was a victory for Hamas. The fighters of Hamas stopped, deterred, prevented Israel from entering the Gaza Strip. And of course, there's also been huge pride and jubilation that Hamas rockets and missiles for the first time were aimed at Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. And even if none of those rockets actually hit their target, what Palestinians here saw was Israeli civilians running for the bomb shelters. And what people here tell me is that, you know, now they know what, what this feels like for us. So on the whole, yes, a sense of jubilation, a sense of relief, and a feeling that uh, very much the victory has been a Palestinian one. Now, you've just come from Israel. Do they then feel defeated, or do they also feel pleased about this conflict? I think more nuance in the Israeli position. I mean, people in the immediate border areas around the Gaza Strip, there's a sense that perhaps the Israeli army should have pressed on, should have inflicted more damage on the Gaza Strip, and should have done more to re-establish Israeli deterrence, which, of course, was the goal of this operation from the very beginning. The government said that they're willing to give this uh, ceasefire a chance, but they also, there's also a degree of scepticism coming from them. They say uh, they will be ready if the ceasefire does not hold to launch another military operation here in Gaza. But I think the, the Israeli government did a cost-benefit take here and, and, and decided that launching a ground operation would have carried far more risks and had a very uncertain prospect. There was, of course, the danger of uh, Israeli casualties, which have been very low in this conflict so far. And there was, of course, also the danger of uh, far higher Palestinian casualties, which then, of course, would have very likely increased Israel's political isolation. So there's uh, not so much a a sense of jubilation, but perhaps quiet satisfaction in Israel. Uh, Military officials say that they feel they've done a lot of damage to the military capabilities of Hamas and other militant groups in the Gaza Strip, and they also feel that they've hit Hamas and the Gaza Strip hard enough to re-establish Israeli deterrence and ensure that the calm holds for perhaps even a few years. Okay, Rula, I mean, we've heard there the view from Gaza and also Tobias's take on how the Israelis see it. I mean, sitting a, a little distance away here in London, but following the region so closely, how do you assess the winners and losers out of this? 
I think that uh, Hamas was definitely bolstered politically, but it was damaged severely militarily. And I don't think that that's necessarily such a bad outcome for Israel, because that is not what they have in mind when they go for such operations. I think in the region itself, Mohamed Morsi, the Egyptian president, has gotten the most praise. And in many ways, he does come out uh, very well. That doesn't surprise me that he's been able to manage all these conflicting pressures. But I think it is Because he surprise. was so crucial. Sorry, just to Yeah, back because up. He, he, Egypt is the one that brokered the ceasefire. But I think he did, he did surprise the Americans. And he probably also surprised the Israelis. Because while Egypt today, and the Muslim Brotherhood, to which Mr. Um, Mr. Mursi belongs, is definitely on the side of the Palestinians and a lot more than the previous regime. What Mursi was able to do is to maintain the line of communication with with Israel and to be able to negotiate a ceasefire that takes into account Israel's security concerns. And he worked quite closely with the Americans. There were several telephone calls between him and and Barack Obama. And I think the Americans in particular have been impressed by by his performance. And I think the big loser in all of this, to me, what's obvious is that the loser is Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority, because he has appeared completely irrelevant. He didn't even visit Gaza. He made a speech that I don't think resonated with with anyone. And, you know, the stronger Hamas is politically, the weaker Mahmoud Abbas becomes. Very interesting about the role of, of President Morsi. I know that from the beginning of the Arab Spring, one of the big questions has been, well, how would this play into the older conflict, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict? Do you think we now have the answer to that, or at least a partial answer? I think a partial answer. And I think that perhaps too much emphasis is being put on the way that that Morsi behaved. But, you know, at the end of the day, the Muslim Brotherhood has always been quite a pragmatic organization. So although he is personally very anti-Israeli, I think he's been pragmatic and he has not acted as an ideologue in this crisis. But nor can he afford to. Mohammed Morsi does not want to go to war against Israel. He doesn't like the peace agreement, but he knows that that protects Egypt. And he needs Western support. This week, Egypt signed an IMF deal for more than $4 billion. And this was happening. The IMF delegation was in Cairo as this conflict was happening. So he didn't really need any reminders of the importance of acting in a pragmatic way and maintaining Western support, particularly uh, American support for Egypt. And Tobias, how will the Israelis be viewing this? Because I know that many of them took a very dark view of the arrival of the Muslim Brotherhood to power in Cairo. Are they now feeling a bit more relaxed about that? I don't think so. Obviously, Israel would still prefer to have the old regime in Cairo. But I think they realize that that there's also some added value to having someone sitting in Cairo who is able to talk to Hamas, who is able to restrain Hamas, and perhaps also other militant forces that Israel regards as an enemy. So I think there is a, I mean, this is still very early days, but I I wouldn't be surprised if ultimately Israel comes to the conclusion that that Mohamed Morsi and the new leadership in Egypt might be able to serve a useful role as as a bridge or as a buffer 
or as someone who can uh, act as a sort of restraint on groups like Hamas. But of course, that also comes with a price. I mean, I think Israel's long-term policy of isolating Hamas, of essentially negating Hamas and Hamas's role in regional politics, I think, though Israeli officials will be reluctant to say that, I think that kind of policy is, is probably coming to an end. And Tobias, I mean, the Israeli elections coming up very soon, a couple of months' time. Do you think Netanyahu will emerge from this conflict strengthened politically? It is very hard to say because it depends so much on how the next few weeks and months pan out. I think if this ceasefire holds and if there are no more rockets on, on Israeli city uh, until January the 22nd, then yes, it will suit him. I mean, it has already, uh, I think, helped his cause in some ways because it completely overshadowed efforts by the centre-left in Israel to form a new united bloc. Uh, it has essentially shifted the debate in Israel completely away from socio-economic issues, which is something of a weak spot for the Israeli right, and firmly back onto, onto sort of security issues where uh, Netanyahu has a big advantage over his rivals. So I think it looks like it's going to be an electoral boost for him, but then we also shouldn't forget that he was overwhelming favorites to win the elections anyway. So accusations that this war was launched mainly or even only to bolster his election chances, I think are somewhat misguided because he actually took a big risk at a time when he was a firm favourite to win anyway. Rula, what about the broader context, the vexed peace process? Is there a peace process anymore? And if so, what does this do to it? No, and I think uh, obviously there hasn't been a peace process um, for years. And I think Western states that want to have a peace process and Arab states do face now possibly an even bigger dilemma because their interlocutor for a peace process is Mahmoud Abbas. And I think as Tobias pointed out, what we've seen over the past week is a more legitimate power in Gaza. And it's going to be very difficult going forward to have any kind of peace process without national unity amongst Palestinians and, in some way, the engagement of Hamas. OK, both of you, if I could just ask for some closing thoughts. I mean, Tobias, when we started, you, you recalled the earlier conflict four years ago, much worse. I mean, are we now, given that, as Ruda says, there's not really a peace process, just doomed to have these flare-ups every now and then between Israel and, and Hamas in Gaza? Or is there any sense that the situation is actually changing? First, Tobias, what are your thoughts on that? Well, again, this is obviously very, very difficult to tell. I mean, I was in Tel Aviv on Thursday, just hours before the ceasefire was announced at a military briefing, and the Israeli general who was there said deterrence is a very foggy concept. 2006, when Israel had a botched war in Lebanon that was sort of widely derided, that caused the defense minister to, you know, he had to resign over this and so forth. Everyone thought it was a disastrous war for Israel. And in the end, Israel got six years of uh, complete calm along the Lebanese-Israeli border. And he pointed out that in 1967, Israel's famous victory in the Six-Day War, it was followed almost within days by the first skirmishes with Egypt. So deterrence is a victory in war doesn't necessarily equal deterrence. And Israel's hope for sure is that even if Hamas is not so much deterred by Israeli military might, that Hamas's interest in keeping Egypt on side will ensure that they'll have perhaps more than a few months of calm. Rula, some closing thoughts from you. 
I think this is a time when a lot is changing in the Middle East and changing very rapidly. So it's very difficult to make any sort of prediction. Certainly, the pattern has been more maintenance of this conflict than resolution in any way and flare up every few years. And I would say that right now, I can't see any clear indication that that will change. But this is a time also when there could be opportunities and we'll know whether these opportunities are real, I think, in the next few months. Okay, Rula Khalaf here in the studio in London. Thank you very much indeed. And Tobias Buck in Gaza City, thanks also to you. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.